Welcome back. Welcome back. Evan here. And Ian. And the second part of our discussion of Songs for Drilla from 1990 by Lou Reed and John Cale. Lou Reed and John Cale. And in a sense, Andy Warhol. Um, you got to talk about the cover. Yeah. Uh, well, we just did, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is how you describe the cover. It's Lou Reed, John Cale, and in a sense, Andy. Yeah, and depending on what image you see of it or what what condition your cover is, yeah, that one's pretty good there. You can see Andy there. Do you have it on vinyl? I don't. I found a copy a couple months ago in a record store here. It was 50 bucks, and it was scratched to shit. So I, I almost bought it, but, you know, it's beautiful. The cover of this record is beautiful. Lou and John, just beautiful pictures of beautiful men uh, in stark black and white. Very, very joker in mindset, if I do say so myself. Uh, and, uh, and a, a half tone pattern on top of them. Yeah. Andy, his ghostly visage in there. The text is barely legible. I mean, it's so dark legible as well. Yeah. It's like something you would put together. You can, you can yeah. barely even tell what it says or who's involved. Yeah. Uh, well it's, it's subtle. You mean? Yeah. Clearly a white light, white heat reference, right? Because that's, that's Billy Name, his tattoo there on the cover of White Light, White Heat, right? Am I remembering that correctly? It's not Billy Name's tattoo, uh, but Billy Name helped to actually produce that image, uh, blow it up and yeah. distort it. Um, and you could just barely make it out, uh, you know, um, and in some like digital versions of it, just like in some digital versions of the cover of Drella, you can't even see actually, you know, the Andy element of things. It's just John and Lou. But the Andy element is so beautiful. That's why you got to buy your music. This picture of Andy with his his eyes closed, uh, his fingers up to his chin, and um, the back the back cover too is just you know barely you can you can just barely read this dark gray over black. Um, which, you know, this is serious business, which is, I think, what the message of the the cover gives. You know, it's like this is a somber project. You know, it's basically a eulogy. So it looks like one. Well, it was conceived at a funeral, right? So, uh, you know, it, uh, it bears, exactly, it bears all of the resemblances of, uh, of one. Um, it's none of that classicist bullshit. It's none of that impressionist bullshit. There's a trouble with the classicists. I love this song. This song is so, like, this is a moment to me when the record just kind of, like, slows down and we can finally breathe a little bit. Like, it's a long album. It's an hour long. There's, what, 15 songs? 
and we've kind of raced through the first four songs there, and we're doing tons of history and character building and uh, interiority and external, you know, kind of character actions and stuff. Um, and we're packing a lot in, and now, kind of in the middle of the record, I think we're finally getting to stretch our legs and just kind of hang out with what is going on here, and that's Trouble trouble of Classicists for me is the first kind of instance of that, when they just kind of, they get to have some fun with it and unpack Andy's... Mind, really. Fucking mind, yeah, yeah exactly, and his, his, his artistic philosophy compared to the artistic philosophies that he felt himself to be in competition with. Yeah. This is also where it gets, you know, brainy or really heady for the first time. The fact that the record spends this much time really unpacking Andy Warhol's philosophy of art is another reason why it is an invaluable piece of art in itself. It's so rare to encounter works of art that actually get into the artistic process in a way that's genuine and authentic. We were talking before about Julian Schnabel. He's someone who does that. I think his films, especially the one with uh, uh, of At Eternity's Gate, you know, the, with Willem Dafoe, is like the best movie I've ever seen about pa- a painter. And it took a painter to do it. David Cronenberg makes great stories with believable artist characters. A ton of his films have artists at the core. And when they talk about their art, even if it's a staged car crash, it's convincing. There's a framework because it was made by somebody who thinks in those terms. With Trouble with the Classicists on Songs for Drella, you have John, uh, which is, feels fitting. Like, for some reason, feels fitting to have John be the one. It should doing be this. Yeah. Just the, the Welsh, you know, kind of the, the, the high minded. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, instead of Lou's, uh, you know, ugly Long Island squawk. Yeah. But there's that's two sides of Warhol, too. He was like really obsessed with just the, the trashiest things. And yeah, I mean, he came from fucking Pittsburgh. Well, he can't. Yeah. I mean, he, he was, as a kid, he was obsessed with like, he, he would write letters, fan letters to, Shirley Temple, and he got back a signed, glossy photograph. A l- little queen. Yeah, he was. He was just a little queen with, with St. Vitus dance in his bed, uh, making paper dolls and uh, sending fan letters away to Shirley Temple. And reading for the first time, uh, you know, really absorbing. He had this opportunity when he was sick to truly absorb the first real push of celebrity culture uh, like celebrity propaganda ephemera, you know, like the in the 20s and 30s, it was the first time that there was really this stuff being sent out and that you would see about Hollywood and about stars and about just the idea of fame in that way that would never leave us. And he was right there sitting like, like we all were at, <laughs> having COVID, you know, and had all this time to like, read stuff we always meant to read or get into certain things. Start a podcast. Start a podcast about Bob Dylan. (laughs) He was sitting there and absorbing all of this stuff about stars. And we'll get more into that later, but... In the next one. In the next one. But with Trouble with the Classicists, it's just as informed by that as anything else. Because once you've got a taste of that kind of glamour, from someone like Shirley Temple. How exciting is another Rembrandt 
that's true about a Rembrandt, but it's all, I mean, it's not just a Rembrandt. It's also fucking Jackson Pollock. It's called Trouble with the Classicists, but it, it's not just it's, about that. It's got just as much trouble with Impressionists. And that's what's so fun about this song is that it is extraordinary character building here. We're just fleshing out who this guy is here. You know, this is not Lou's opinion about the value of any particular artistic school. It's not John's opinion. It's Lou and John's interpretation of Andy's opinion. And it's, you know... It yeah. really asks kind of a lot of you as the listener to distinguish between all of the different moving pieces here. It's it's not something that many people are trained for in today's media climate, uh, not to toot our own horns or anything. But, um, you know, there there are multiple sliding pieces here. Uh, and so I just always have so much fun listening to this. And these these kind of catty little lines, those downtown macho painters They're are just, just alcoholic. alcoholic. It sounds like a Donald Trump fucking statement. The trouble with the classicist, he looks at a tree. That's all he sees, he paints a tree. The trouble with the classicist, he looks at the sky. He doesn't ask why, he just paints a sky. The trouble with an impressionist, he looks at a log. He doesn't know who he is standing, staring at this log. And surrealist memories are too amorphous and proud. Well, those downtown macho painters are just alcoholic. The trouble with impressions. There's a trouble with impressions. There's a trouble with impressions. There's a trouble with impressions. Well, it's true. It's kind of true. I mean, it's sort of true, but it's also not. It's like a totally biased thing to say. Right. As, as somebody who loves abstract expressionism as much as I love Andy Warhol, I, I really see the the point of critics who would decry Warhol here. We have to put it into perspective. I think right now we need to talk a little bit about Warhol as a painter. When would you, I don't know if you know, but like when, what year do you think Warhol first painted the soup cans? Just curious. Uh. 54? 62. I like rock songs. I would have guessed before I learned that, that it was like 65, 66, but it's 62. Uh-huh. And that was... Cream of mushroom. Beef, chili. Cream of chicken. Yeah. <laughs> Corn. Uh, cream, of, cream of celery. <laughs> the importance of that is really not to be understated. You don't think about culture really reflecting that till later. The respected art of the moment was abstract expressionism. The like evidence on the on the canvas of the inner life of the painter. It it makes you kind of try to understand this like ineffable thing that is going on in their mind and the way that it's inexpressible but is attempting to be expressed. There's something really beautiful about that. But what Warhol does is like the absolute opposite of that. Very much. While also kind of one-upping it by being like, that's understood. Cream of celery. (laughs) Cream of celery. Yeah, it was a reaction against it. You know, it happened. Whatever the the. I mean, Pollock was doing most of his shit like in the fifties, right? Um, So if the soup cans are sixty-two, this is you know six you know six eight years later. Um, it, you know, you, you react against what came before, you know, you see that again and again in any sort of discipline 
I personally don't have a dog in this fight. You know, I, I, on a very surface basic level, appreciate Warhol's, you know, paintings and, and Pollock's paintings. Uh, I just love the idea of, of Warhol and, and what he thought and represented, you know, in his practice, having this kind of like catty, bitchy, <laughs> bitchy feeling about all of these other people around him. It's such a brilliant bit of, again, character building from Lou and John here in the writing. Yeah, I mean, it, it does work beautifully as a bit of characterization. Um, but it's the it's the canniness that comes across of of Warhol as someone who clearly understands what's going on around him and sees that it's not the best way to communicate something or that he thinks and believes he has a better way what to he do thinks it. is not the best yeah, exactly yeah and yeah. and so you can't take any of this as gospel no but what it means to be an artist i think is to kind of believe that you have a better way of doing it than the next person this is that song, you know, about that that feeling of like, well, I would never fucking do it that way. And I've said before, but I really think that to hate another artist is probably a good sign for you as an artist. It means you have a perspective. I think sometimes it hurts you when you stay too long in school. I think sometimes it hurts you when you're afraid to be called a fool. There's trouble with crisis. There's a trouble with crisis. kind of continue this thread for a couple songs like i said like the middle of this record is a really fun kind of period to just like sort of get into this world and inhabit this this mind space that john and lou have conjured of andy's here um starlight follows up uh, directly on uh trouble with classicists not with its fixation on painting but now we're moving on to the filmmaking element of things and to give some context about the way that warhol's painting career developed and then transitioned into film his early paintings um like in 61 were kind of an outgrowth of his advertising artwork a lot of it was you know hand painted and then he kept developing and finding new ways of shifting his technique until he hit upon the silk screening process um what if instead of just giving the feeling of something printed by hand, you just actually printed it. And then that is what leads him into film. The imperfections that happen when you repeat and repeat, that can happen with the paint and or the ink. And it happens automatically with film when you just turn the camera on someone. It's art that references life and so why not just get closer to the reference point? Just capture the life. Cut out the know, middleman. Mechanically, yeah, exactly. And this song is basically about the early days of Warhol's factory turning into a film studio. 
and I think it's kind of the hardest driving song on the whole record. Yeah, absolutely. And it reaches this intensity without even having drums. Like, where is the kit, right? Like, we're halfway through this record almost, and I haven't heard a single fucking bit of percussion all the way through. And spoiler, you're not gonna, you're not going to. Again, the same way that we like we talked recently on the best of the '80s episode about like music for a new society demanding a new genre classification that doesn't exist. I kind of feel the same way about Drella. Like this, this music just does not sound like music that anyone else has made ever, really, in any other kind of context. The willingness to subtract as much ornamentation as they can just to refocus everyone's attention on these lyrics, which. Remember, this was initially conceived of as not a record, but as a performance that they were giving live. The music and the performance and the lyrics needed to be straightforward and and legible enough to be understood right there, sitting in your seat the first time you ever heard it, the only time you might have ever heard it. How about that part where Lou says, Starlight open wide and just screams it? Such a weird phrase, Starlight open wide. It gives that sense of the violence of this moment, of like the amphetamine-fueled fury of it. Yeah, It's a little bit queasy and sinister, and it rightfully so. This is this kind of orgy of whatever drives Warhol. Like, the dreamy idealism of style it takes, that's the courtship. And this song is the fucking. Starlight on the wide. Everybody is a star. Split screen eight hour movies. We got color, we got sound. Won't you recognize us? Everything you hate And it loves all Hollywood movies It'll scare your hypocrites to death You know that shooting up's for real That person is screaming, that's the way it really feels We're all improvising five movies in a week if Hollywood doesn't call us, we'll be sick. There's this frenetic, orgiastic quality to the song that comes from this discovery of I can just shoot people and see what they do. And finding all these people who want and desire nothing more than to be the one he's doing that with. The song sort of revels in this sick thrill of breaking the rules. It's very sexually charged. Starlight let us in that magic room. We've all dreamt to Hollywood, it can't happen too soon. Won't you give us a million dollars, the rent's due. And he'll give you two movies and a painting. Starlight open wide. I think that that theme carries through right right to the next song, Faces and Names. I'd rather be a hole in the wall looking out on the other side. I'd rather look and listen, listen and not talk to faces and names. Yeah. 
to, he wants like a one-way mirror, right? Like the, in a, like a detective story where you can look through the mirror and see everyone, uh, but you can't, the, people can't see back at you. And that's what he's doing, you know, in large part with his art, you know, is reproducing these, you know, iconic bits of American culture. And yet he himself is completely removed from the equation. You know, it's an Andy Warhol work and yet Andy Warhol, the, the physical presence is completely removed Yes, but also this is post-movie Andy. So the people that he's focusing on, you know, it, it's, it was Marilyn Monroe. It was Jackie Kennedy. It was these icons. Then with the films, it becomes this coterie, this, this kind of gaggle of wannabes who he saw could really be the thing. But they were only because he understood he had that power. Right. Well, yeah, it's it's... It's refocusing kind of the energy back onto himself. Like, I get to dictate who is worth caring about. But it's still not me, personally. It's not my face. It is my name, but it's not my face. And, and that is tricky and raises these uh, ethical questions often about this hands-off approach uh, and letting things be versus this hands-off approach and claiming no responsibility. And this is kind of a paradox. Later, Andy, the character in this fictional work of fiction... Songstradrella of fiction. Lou added that subtitle after the fact just to give himself complete license and then disallow yeah. anyone from complaining. <laughs> well, the central contradiction in this song is something that kind of comes back and uh, in a very grim way later on. If we all look the same, then... We wouldn't play these games. He says, me jealous of you, you you jealous of me. There'd be less trouble, you'd see. Right. What it doesn't say is that he depends on that trouble. If we all looked the same, we wouldn't play these games. Me dressing for you, you dressing for me. Undressing for me. Faces and names, if they all were the same, you wouldn't be jealous of me, or me jealous of you. Me jealous of you, you jealous of you. Your face and your name. Your face and your name. Faces and names. Faces and names. It's complexifying what's come before. This, I think, there's this, this really, this four-song like mini suite here in the middle, and this is the third of the four that like really kind of just digs down into, again, John and Lou's interpretations of their subject here and his entire kind of ethos and worldview. Yeah, I mean, just to say one last word about faces and names. Andy Warhol was really self-conscious about his face yeah. and, the, and the way he looked. Um, and in the song, it says, you know, I always fall in love with someone who looks the way I wish that I could be. Could be, exactly. It's the whole thing behind the superstars. Right. Visual intimacy. 
The other irony, of course, being that Andy himself had such a distinctive physical visage, you know, the way that he looked, the way that he dressed, the way that he carried himself, and was also putting himself in position, you know, going to fucking Studio 54, putting himself in position to be seen and photographed. See and, and be seen, yeah. Exactly, and, and committed to, you know, the visual ledger of the 20th century, uh, you know, in American history, you know, one of the most distinctive artists like I, I don't fucking know what jackson pollock looks like but i know damn well sure what andy warhol looks like he was bald <laughs> sure that makes sense the macho <laughs> high t um images. images oh images this is the most uh john and Lu- this is kind of like is black angels death song the yeah, sequel man totally <laughs> I think images are worth repeating, images repeated from a painting. Images taken from a painting, from a photo worth re-seeing. I love images worth repeating, project them upon the ceiling. Multiply them with sunscreening, see them with a different feeling. Images, those images, images. I love this one. It's about his obsession with images, ironically, kind of blindly charging forward. No, say don't. This one rocks. I like it because it rocks. Do you have favorite lines from any of the last few songs over this one? Mao say don't. Yeah, I know you like that one. <laughs> Mao say don't. Mao say don't. Mao Zedong. Yeah. I mean, Lou is just so into this one. It sounds great. And John's just like... Oh, John's mm, wailing. Killing it. Wailing. Wilding the, out. The viola. Yeah. Uh, it's... Um, I mean, this is, this is as close to what you would want from... like Or what I, as a 20-year-old, coming to this record. This is as close to what I would have wanted the Lou Reed and John Cale sequel to The Velvet Underground to have sounded like. So I just... I always... I still, even in my lizard brain, get excited hearing this. Because it's like, hell yeah, this, <laughs> this is the shit. This is The Velvet Underground. <laughs> and it makes sense that it's that way. Because this is the song that goes straight on into the nuclear reactor of... Andy Warhol's artistic mind. Some say images have no feeling. I think there's a deeper meaning. Mechanical precision, or so it's seeming, instigates a cooler feeling. I love multiplicity screenings. Things born anew display new meanings. I think images are worth repeating. If you're looking for a deeper meaning, I'm as deep as this high ceiling. If you think technique is meaning, you might find me very simple. You might think the images are boring, cars and cans and chairs and flowers, and you might find me personally boring. Hammer sickle, mouth say tongue, mouth say tongue. Those images, those images, images. And it's worth noting, a lot of the lyrics to this record are drawn from Andy Warhol's diaries which were not even published at this time and have have since been. But many of these lines are Warhol verbatim, you know, in his own words. Um, I, uh, I hate Lou, for instance, is, is definitely um, one that comes straight out I of I hate there. Lou, I really do, which, you know, we'll yeah. get there. But I, so like, I don't, I don't know, like if images necessarily, if these are statements from particular entries that he had, um, and so if they are just repeating them, you know, presenting them rather, um, uh, as you know, images of his own words, uh, so to speak. 
um, or if this is some degree of embellishment. But uh, you know, a lot of this, you know, it, it, even that having that question in your mind, I think, is 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 interesting and significant here. Those images. It sounds like suicide. Oh, end. images. Images. Those images. Yeah, exactly. Reading images. Images. Those images. Those images. And then the most beautiful song on the record. Let us hear this take. When that organ comes on after that beautiful kind of strumming entry from Lou on the guitar, and like maybe the one instance, one of a few instances, I should say, of Lou actually bothering to like kind of sing some lines instead of just stating them. Um, it's just, mm, especially coming after, uh, you know, we're, we're out of the kind of hangout in Warhol's mind statement at this point. We're, we, we've picked up with the narrative once again. And uh, there is absolutely an expository element to it. Um, but uh, I just, uh, you know, the, that, that, the, the way they come back to the title, you know, slowly slip away, that refrain, as, as expository and name-droppy as the rest of the song can be, when you get that kind of crux, you know, when, when you're hanging this song off of that crux, and then it also sounds the way it does, this is, mm, it's great. It's a song about the, the period where people were starting to tell Warhol that the factory as it existed was not sustainable. It was becoming too volatile, too unpredictable, too much crazy drama and too much of an open house. Friends have said to lock the door and have an open house no more. They said the factory must change and slowly slip away. in fear where will i get my ideas with all those crazy people gone will i slowly slip away still there's no more billy name undine is not the same wanton and the turtle gone slowly slip away Slowly slip away. It's Warhol ruminating on those warnings about things needing to change and ultimately deciding I'm not going to be inspired if I change things. Right. And narratively picking up on the thread that was planted all the way back on track two with Open House and directly informing the moment of tension that we're about to encounter as we move from the second act to the third act here. Like, this is where the musical theater element of the show, record piece, whatever you want to call it, really comes to the forefront, I think. Yeah, the narrative of it the na- exactly. uh, becomes, on a, you can't ignore it. Um, slip Away is... It's a triumph in a way, almost, you know, it's like almost achieves liftoff of like, no, I'm going to rally and I'll, and I'll do it and I'll just continue on. And it's like, it'd be brave if it wasn't kind of ominous. Yeah, it's both. Exactly. There's, there's like, um, an acknowledgement of the, you know, he, he's sealed his own fate here. There is, there is a beauty and a, um, admirable quality to the decision, but at the same time. Uh, according to the narrative, at least this this decision is what kind of dooms him ultimately. Um, yeah, 
It's just, Which, it's a really strongly, like, effectively conceived, you know, character study, um, you know, on, on Lou and John's part as, as writers here. Because the romance of Warhol comes across again, this, like, genuine romance. What will I do? Like, where will I get my ideas with all those crazy people gone? That's where he really is as, like, a romantic figure. You know, it seems kind of alien and I think he's thought of so often as being this kind of cold, removed presence, but he's so interested by the people around him. He puts himself in harm's way to remain in contact with that. And and that is a romantic gesture. Will not slip away. Will not slip away. If I have to live in fear, my ideas will slowly slip away. If I have to live in fear, I'm afraid my life will slip away. If you can't see me past my door, why your thoughts could slowly slip away. If I have to lock the door, another life exists no more, slip away. Friends have said to lock the door, watch out for what comes through that door. They said the factory must change. But I don't. No. And then in between that and the next song is a lot. Um, it wasn't me is the next song. It's a song that Shaggy would later cover to great effect. That's right. Um, <laughs> it wasn't me is a really genius use of that phrase because suddenly this character we understand from faces and names and, and the rest to want nothing to do with, um, having a face or name himself is living with the consequences of having one of the biggest faces and names there was and being this magnet to so many people and actually delivering on giving other people a chance to indulge their fantasies. The aftermath of that is so toxic and fucked up. I mean, the, we don't need to go into the death of Edie Sedgwick. A, to- a topic about which uh, Lou himself, you know, <laughs> should be noted. It's a bit callous about it. See uh, Sally Ken dance for more information on that subject. Well, I have a lot to say about that topic later, later on, like not this episode. Are you saving it for the Sally Ken dance episode? I'm saving it for the Lulu episode. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> wasn't me who shamed you it's not fair to say that you wanted to work i gave you a chance at that wasn't me who hurt you that's more credit than i'm worth don't threaten me with the things you do to you wasn't me who shamed you wasn't me who brought you down you did it to yourself without any help from me wasn't me who hurt you, 
I showed you possibilities. The problems you had were there before you met me. I didn't say this had to be. You can't blame these things on me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. I know she's dead. It wasn't me. Yeah, I don't think that there's any sort of judgment ultimately. Like I don't I don't think John and Lou were coming down on Andy's side or not on Andy's side really at any point throughout this this record. I think they they love the man clearly and they appreciate him for what he did and for who he was and what he accomplished as an artist. Um but at the same time, again, like we've talked about this record is made by two individuals who knew the man personally, individually as a as a human being, you know, someone that you could just like be kind of bitchy to or who would be bitchy back to you, someone who, you know, would just annoy you. Um and so it's it's motivated or animated by, you know, a real third dimension that anyone else like you and I uh or another observer just wouldn't have wouldn't have known, uh wouldn't have understood. And so a song like this, I think clearly is, you know, Lou and John's interpretation of Andy's reasoning behind, you know, his lack of guilt, you know, or lack of complicity in any of these situations with people like Edie Sedgwick. Um, but um, at the same time, I don't, I don't think that this is, again, the artists here, Lou and John, uh, giving Andy a free pass and just saying the way that this song reads, these lyrics, this is what we believe, right? I don't think that that is exactly what's happening at all. This episode of Jokerman Podcast is brought to you by Factor Meals. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. Folks, it's fall. Bob Dylan is going back out on tour. You might be running around all across the country trying to catch each and every one of these shows, and Factor Meals can help you do just that. If you're too busy to cook but want to make sure you're eating well, Factor will help you skip extra trips to the grocery store and all the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality you need. If you're looking for calorie-conscious options, try delicious, dietitian approved calorie-smart meals with no more than 550 calories per serving. So this September, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. So head to factormeals.com slash jokerman50 and use the code jokerman50 to get 50% off. Again, that's code jokerman50 at factormeals.com slash jokerman50 to get 50% off. Namaste to our friends at Factor Meals. You know, we talked about Lou kind of recognizing Andy and his presence and especially his relationship to the Velvets as a sort of protector, a conservator of what they were doing keeping it from being adulterated and changed, letting it be itself, letting the people who were in the films be themselves, letting the soup cans be themselves, letting the car crashes and anything he made his subject exist as itself and trying to present it in a way that causes the viewer to reflect on it. And that's the nature of his art. And at the same time as that can be recognized as being a protector of the thing or a steward of the subject it's also in the wrong circumstances negligence it's letting things happen it's being irresponsible he doesn't bear any responsibility in making the fame or the legend behind jackie kennedy or marilyn monroe and these other people he does 
they wouldn't have been celebrities if he hadn't turned his fucking camera on and pointed at them in the first place. And so everything that comes along with that, to what extent does he bear some some degree of responsibility? And there's no you know there's no answer here. There's no no firm answer that's written in stone. Everyone has their own take on it. But it's it's a tricky question and something you wrestle with. Yeah, it's an ethical question about did did he let this happen to these people? Um, and it it really is kind of a, a disturbing, a genuinely disturbing thing to ponder. And I think what this song does is suggest that he was disturbed by that and couldn't figure it. He didn't, you know, it, without, I think the song suggests that he knew on some level he, he had some culpability there. Even yeah. if he didn't actually do anything about it, especially because he didn't. Again, the lady doth protest too much. Wasn't it me. wasn't me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I already told you I was, I wanted to be a robot or a machine. Right, exactly. He's not. not. He's not. I didn't tell you to slit your wrists. Oh, yeah. that line's so brutal. Uh, I didn't tell you, yeah. I mean, and R.I.P. Uh, <laughs> to Edie Sedgwick and to and Emory, and Emory. It, it it really was, I mean, that's something that we're not going to solve here on Jokerman Podcast. Certainly not. It's something this, that this record, I think, bravely addresses. Valerie Solanus. <laughs> well, here's the actual result <laughs> here of we all go. that. Here's the, is, uh, we're in the third act, baby. June 3rd, 1968, Valerie Solanus walks into the factory and shoots Andy Warhol, shoots art critic Mario Amaya, and attempts to shoot Warhol's manager, Fred Hughes. She was a writer who uh, wrote the Scum Manifesto. Society for Cutting Up Men. She was the only member. You don't say. By all accounts, she suffered a lot of horrible abuse at the hands of men. I think it's fair to say real and imagined she channeled that rage into writing into the scum manifesto among other writings and a play called up your ass which she showed to warhol when warhol encountered her he was polite enough to sort of be like well that's interesting and suddenly she had dreams of being made a star uh having her play produced this never materialized, and the manuscript which she gave to Warhol uh, was allegedly lost. She became convinced that this was a deliberate act of sabotage by Warhol against her um, to discredit her, to steal her ideas and produce it um, anyway without her involvement, and decides to kill him. The nature of her grievances against Warhol are, I think, really complex. And there's a lot you can read about, a lot of minutiae that can be gone into. But what we need to know here is that for Lou Reed, it's not complicated. And that's what he goes into on the song, I Believe. Valerie Solanas took the elevator, got off at the fourth floor. Valerie Solanas took the elevator, got off at the fourth floor. 
She pointed the gun at Andy saying, you cannot control me anymore. I believe there's got to be some retribution. I believe an eye for an eye is elemental. I believe there's something wrong if she's alive right now. Her first two shots miss, but the third goes through his spleen, his stomach, his liver, his esophagus, and his lungs. Fucked him up for the rest of his life. Everyone thought he was going to die. The paramedics thought he was dead. And were picking up on the dramatic threads initially laid down in open house once again and brought back in Slip Away. Now we are really at the, uh, you know, the major incident here uh, as we transition into the third act. But it's not only concerned with Valerie Solanus and the shooting, right? It's also concerned with the aftermath of that. Andy said, where were you? You didn't come to see me. And he said, I think I'd die. Why didn't you come to see me? And he said, it hurt so much they took blood from my hand. Words that he spoke to Lou himself. Yeah. Um, you know, Lou's speaking from personal experience there. And once again, like, I think coming after something like It Wasn't Me, where there's this very ambivalent and unclear resolution, lack of resolution even, uh, to Andy's responsibility towards these people in his orbit, that, that again, could be part of the reason why... You're not going to see him in the hospital after he's been shot. Not saying that that's the right decision that Lou made at the time either, but, um, you know, there's, it's just, it's, it's a very complex, this is a heavy, uh, a heavy thing from, from top to bottom, from everyone involved. Yeah, to hear Lou sing those lines, why didn't you visit me, visit me, why didn't you visit me, and to know that the way Warhol died years later, no one was there. Exactly. It's this... It's very intense foreshadowing of that. And it's perfectly fitting as the climax of the piece because it's really focused on that core theme of responsibility. Right. Like you said, Warhol's responsibility uh, to the people he brings into his world, it paints this picture, the song, of this horrific act of violence. And it, it also brings up the thought that what spurred this to happen is sort of a, a a nightmare version of the kind of tension and hostility Lou has felt for Andy and vice versa. Except now Lou is seeing it from the outside and he's fiercely protective and wrathful because it lays bare these deep feelings of connection and love he has for Andy. This wrath and righteous anger that is pouring out of Lou here is directed primarily at Valerie Solanas, but it's equally at himself for not doing enough. Um, and that's the Lou in 68 in the moment, feeling this shock and fury. And this other layer too of Lou in 89, 90, looking back at himself thinking, how did I how did I fail to be there for my friend? Lou says some really hostile and nasty things in the song. Uh, I believe being sick is no excuse. I believe I would have pulled the switch on her myself. I believe there's something wrong if she's alive right now. And I think that the generous read of the song is that that fury um comes from a sense of sorrow of not being able to protect this person who once protected him. 
Things changed really dramatically after the shooting. Security was ramped up uh, in a way that it never was before. The open house is just uh, not an option anymore. And it wasn't just logistical changes. It was Andy living in fear for the rest of his life uh, that she would attack him again. Billy Name says that after the shooting, quote, it was the cardboard Andy not the Andy I could love and play with. He was so sensitized, you couldn't put your hand on him without him jumping. I couldn't even love him anymore because it hurt him to touch him. In this atmosphere of fear and suspicion is uh, what creeps in and I think informs the next song. Mm, Nobody like you. Nobody but you, excuse me. Well, the song does kind of go back and forth between those two. It does say nobody like you, yes. It's the single from the record, and it's the one that they played on Letterman um, at the time. It's a great performance, if you haven't seen it. Uh, and it's sort of the closest thing to, like, a like if, uh, if, if, if the record company is trying to find something semi, like, just with the barest degree of, uh, of acceptability from the general public, uh, you know, this is as close to that as you get because it's kind of just like a nice strummy acoustic guitar sing-along type of song if you're looking at it at a very surface level from an auditory kind of level. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot more going on uh, beneath the surface or not even beneath the surface, on the surface, uh, just lyrically speaking. But if, if you're if you're enough of adult, enough of a bird brain to not even listen to the words, uh, you know, you can just kind of hum along and bop your head and say, yeah, it's pretty good. Yes, it's almost rock songs. <laughs> But it's really interesting for how it articulates this other side of Andy, uh, which is sort of the result of that, why didn't you visit me? This kind of bitter version of Andy who is wounded in more ways than one. I look like I do not Since I was shot There's nobody but you 
I know I look blase. Partying is what the papers say. At dinner, I'm the one who paid for a nobody like you. Nobody but you. Nobody like you. Since I got shy. You know, that first line, I really care a lot. Although I look like I do not. That can mean a lot of things at once, and it does. It means I care a lot, I really care about you, right? and I care a lot, so don't cross me. Right, the power uh, dynamic inherent in a relationship between Warhol and one of his subjects. The song plays a lot with this idea of Warhol now knowing he has this power to decide who gets to be somebody. Yeah. And as a way of protecting himself uh, and out of uh, bitterness, he's kind of like, what if I just decide you're nobody again? Yeah. How would you like that? It's a very double-sided sentiment. You know, it's like you understand why this guy's having a hard time. We just went through him getting fucking you know, an assassination attempt on him. You get it. You're, you're on his side from that, from that angle. But at the same time, he's being just like a shit towards these people that are around him. People that he was just claiming a moment ago. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault that you slit your wrist and fucking <laughs> overdosed on pills and shit. Like, it's a really nuanced and, and real, uh, hard, brutally honest kind of portrait of this individual and it doesn't let anyone off the hook exactly least of all lou in in the context like like lou is one of the reasons why he he has this kind of feeling of being lonely at the top in a way it's eerily reminiscent of what happened or almost happened with dylan in the 60s Mm. where he was like noticing himself be starting to be seen as this purely a symbol um and a mascot for the counterculture and ran away from that and here andy seems kind of like he's trapped in that thing in that place of actually being that and yeah sort of noticing that the way that people view him in this very superficial way and also sort of you know, being haunted by this awful violence done to him and feeling disconnected from the living in a way. Apparently after the shooting, he had this sensation of not being sure he was still alive, this dissociation. And um, that just coupled with the bitterness uh, about feeling neglected or or left out or whatever leads to this kind of chilling moment at the end shattered bone for nobody but you I'm still not sure I didn't die and if I'm dreaming I still have bad pains inside I know I'll never be a bride to nobody like you I wish I had a stronger chin My skin was good, my nose was thin 
This is no movie that I'd ask to be in With a nobody like you Nobody like you Nobody like you All my life It's been nobody's like you It's brutal And at the same time totally just like listenable and pleasant and again as as kind of yeah traditional you know expected easy to easy to grok kind of sound as you're gonna get next song not so much we're getting close at this point and uh any sort of rose-colored glasses element that you might expect you know uh if you conceive of this is just like lou reed and john kale remember their friend that's not (laughs) that's not what's going on here talk about haunting a dream pulled almost entirely directly from the diaries as far as i know lou wrote a lot of this on his own apparently uh uh according to his side of the story at least john went off on a tour in in europe around this time and he conceived of it as like let's do a sequel to the gift where we're like doing a short story um and you even kind of like get that sense from the title right the gift a dream um but Lou decided to turn it into a dream instead of a story um, and, and take some additional dramatic license along with this and paint this extraordinarily vivid, um, horrifying song, I think, that has more in common with something on Music for a New Society than it does with anything else. And then gives the song to John, or, or has, I don't know if he gives the song to John, but somehow the two of them decide this is a John song, not a Lou song. Um, and, uh, and again, I think that has something to do with the side of the man of Andy that they're trying to, to cast a light on to here because we are getting close to the end now. And uh, this is a guy who is alone uh, at this point in his life, um, and sort of lost and, and is a character deserving of, of pity. I think John's John isn't singing here. Uh, I think this is the most deadpan kind of performance he gives on the whole record, lyrically speaking. But it's a really gentle. And musically, it's just really unsettling, you know, all the way through. These discordant kind of piano notes that you get that bear some degree of resemblance to Small Town from earlier. And yet at the same time, bear no resemblance to small town, you know, whatsoever. Uh, it, it's like looking at it through a funhouse mirror, you know. It's, um, I don't know, it, it really kind of gives me the, the heebie-jeebies here at the end in a really great way, in a very effective way. A very, very powerful song. Song. <laughs> Quote-unquote song. It's a great acting performance. Yeah, performance. And it's a great, you know, it was apparently called from various parts of the diaries. and. The choice, the choices made are incredible for the, the way that they fl- create this whole monologue. Um, it is a dream. So it's a dream sequence, and that, that is played in a very interesting way where if you're not listening carefully, you might not realize that things don't actually make sense in it. Uh, because certain things do and that's it's such a great depiction of a dream where like there's scenarios that are familiar and feel like their regular waking life and then there's just things that he says billy name and bridget 
uh, are playing under the stairs that there's a uh, under the stairs there's a little meadow like the park at 23rd street right it's not clear how lucid he is like how how connected he is to reality even at this point and in the narrative where he actually is at this point is in a hospital bed alone it was a very cold clear fall night some snowflakes were falling. Gee, it was so beautiful. And so I went to get my camera to take some pictures. And then I was taking the pictures, but the exposure thing wasn't right. And I was going to call Fred or Jerry to find out how to set it. But, oh, it was too late. And then I remembered there was still probably a dinner. And anyway, I felt really bad. Didn't want to talk to anybody. But the snowflakes were so beautiful and real looking. And I really wanted to hold them. That's when I heard the voices from down the hall near the stairs. There's something about the the part where he, he's he's talking about seeing these snowflakes and they looked so real and uh I wanted to hold them. And that in his dream he can't take a picture of them cuz the exposure is wrong and he can't the light meters fucked up. And he up, can't yeah. call anyone cuz it's too late. Like, there are things that that scenario, this little scenario says about Warhol and Warhol's death that are very deeply personal and profound. Snowflakes, you know, like, they're all the same. They're all different. They all have these unique little things that make them different, but they're all uniform. He wants to take a picture of them, and he can't get anyone to help him do it. No. And extraordinary also for references to John and Lou themselves in the lyrics. I hate Lou. I really do. You know, Lou Reed got married and didn't invite me. And I was so proud of him. We get that after the John lines. I saw John Cale. He's been looking really great. He's been coming by the office to exercise with me. And, and Lou wrote this knowing that, like, John was the one who, who went and put an effort in and i didn't fucking do it right exactly the stuff he had to face to make this song and put these words down and decide to do it that way is asking so much that's like more vulnerable than lou reed ever is anywhere else yeah and he sort of skirts it you know by letting john take this one having john do it but yeah lou also didn't originally sing i'll be your mirror you know yeah, no, absolutely. But that's in him. The most intimate and really difficult thing to admit, you know. It's like I wasn't a good grandkid. Like I didn't visit my mom or dad. Well, that's what I was just going to say. There, you, you really get at this point this, this familial dynamic here, right? Where Lou and John are brothers and Andy as the father. Yeah. And Lou is the maybe the older brother who has gone off on struck out on his own and and neglected his family and doesn't care about them anymore and we know we know from Lou's own personal experience as a as a son in his actual family that that is very much what happened 
Um, but in this weird, fucked up artistic family, even he's replaying that role and he's disappointed his father and he's not there for him anymore. And the younger brother is there and he's looking great and he's, you know, he's around and, and, uh, and we're working together. You know, there's even the reference to Andy doing the Oni Swa cover that John ends up colorizing, which is again, a very funny and petty kind of line. Yeah. Um, you can't tell anybody anything, uh, but even that line is, is, is mm, so full of meaning. There's so much. You know, you, I've learned that now you can't, you can't tell anybody anything. Yeah. Yeah. What you get at this point with Andy as a character is, I think, so profoundly complex and dignified. And it's dignified because of how deeply compromised Lou makes himself uh, within that. Just to know that he put that, he made that happen. He made those choices to include those bits. You know, Lou Reed got married and didn't invite me is no. it because he thought i didn't invite bring too, too many, many people, people. It's, it's like actually it's really painful i mean i i, I yeah it, it, andy's really like like this this portrait of, of the the guy you get at this point on this song is really just such a there's almost like a childlike element to it you know like he is the father of of john and lou but at the same time he's like oh i didn't get invited and because i thought because the guy thought i would bring too many people it's like like oh man it's like and that line of uh, the park where all the kids are playing frisbee, it'd be great to do that, an article on that in the magazine, but they'll just tell me I'm stupid. Right, exactly. Uh, but it's my magazine anyway. I should hold my ground. Very Trumpian once again. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's my magazine. Uh, and that also has this childlike thing. On this note, actually, the the in, I'm, I'm just going back to this section in, in De Curtis, uh, who, who says, the hate line was particularly important to Lou. And then quoting Lou, uh, when John was doing the reading, Lou said, I kept telling him that when we get to that line, I hate Lou, you got to say it like a kid. It's like the way a little kid would say it. And then I saw Lou. I'm so mad at him. Lou Reed got married and didn't invite me. I mean, is it because he thought I'd bring too many people? I don't get it. Could have at least called. I mean, he's doing so great. Why doesn't he call me? I saw him at the MTV show and he's one row away and he didn't even say hello. I don't get it. You know, I hate Lou. I really do. He wouldn't even hire us for his videos. And I was so proud of him. I was so scared today. blood leaking through my shirt from those old scars from being shot. And the corset I wear to keep my insides in was hurting. And I did three sets of 15 push-ups and four sets of 10 sit-ups. And then my insides hurt and I saw drops of blood in my shirt. And I remember the doctors saying I was dead. And then later they had to take blood out of my hand because they ran out of veins then all this thinking is making me an old crouch and can't do anything anyway so they wouldn't let me play with them in my own dream I was just going to have to make up another and another and another gee wouldn't it just be so funny if I died in this dream before I could make another one 
if if the whole fucking project needs to be boiled down to one song, song again, quote unquote, a dream. It's all it's all in here. Yeah. Forever changed. Beautiful track. I love this song. And not just because it has to do with Trey. No, not just because it has to do with Trey. <laughs> but partially because it has to do with Trey. But, uh, Train! <laughs> Entering the city. <laughs> um, John has said on various occasions that this song, as he was singing it, felt like he was talking about himself. And I think that it's a part of the effectiveness of the song that, you know, by the end of A Dream... You know, that is the death scene. That is Warhol's death. Right. And Forever Changed is, a, it's John's coda. And then there's another one at the, to really cap it off. But this is John's moment of um, res- paying his respects is how I view this one. Yeah, totally. And, and rightfully, because it is John's, it's simpler. It's remembering this man as he would have wanted to be remembered. It's remembering him as a hero, as an artist, as someone who came from Pittsburgh, you know, uh, albino, gay and fatty, and then, you know, remade his life and, and, and achieved everything that anyone could ever hope to. Um, and it's got this driving, anthemic, emotional piano riff that takes you all the way through. Lou's guitar is, you know, pretty, pretty uh, heavy as far as those things go. It's just a really exciting song, I think. It kind of like brings you back to the very beginning. Andy Warhol was 20 years old when he got to New York for the first time. And he never felt at home anywhere else. And he just made it happen. Nobody except Bob Dylan is that guy. Right. Like just wanders in knowing what they want to be. Another 20-year-old who shows up in New York one day and then just just so happens to change the fucking world. And instead of wanting to be Woody Guthrie, Warhol wanted to be Truman Capote. And he went right. and sent him letters on his stoop. Uh, he would basically just literally hang out and, and send him these letters like, Happy Thursday, Happy Friday. <laughs> With little what, is, what is the line in, in small town? Lis- lisping Capote, that, my hero. Lisping Capote, my hero. Oh, you think <laughs> I could meet him? That was real. Uh, like, he actually was obsessed yeah. with him. And Capote was like, this is an annoying reply guy. Right. Just goes to show, as annoying of a reply guy as any of you out there may be, you can have your own annoying reply guy. <laughs> Truman Capote really thought that Andy Warhol was just, I think in his own, like to paraphrase, but basically said, this is like one of those fucking losers, like this sad people who you just know nothing's ever going to happen to. And that's how a lot of people viewed Andy Warhol. And they could, they were just the wrongest people of all time. And this song is about forever changed. And it's, it's said it, it's phrased like I was forever changed by my experiences and by my travels, you know, Warhol traveled the world and, all these things that happened to him that made, that left a mark and made him the person he became. But I think it's really talking about his impact on the world and that the world was forever changed by him. It's, it's the other way around. But he was humble enough to feel like he was changed by the world. And I think it's the people who feel that way that are the ones who actually change things for the better for everyone else.
get to the city Get a job Gotta get some work To see me through My own life's behind I see it receding My life's disappearing Disappearing from view See me through Henry and Bridget to see me through on the yacht to see me through on the heart to see me through my old life's disappearing disappearing from view even know what to say about the next song because i feel like we should just let it play yeah what else like there's nothing to say about it yeah hello it's me it's lou this is uh yeah anything that we could say about it i think lou says better himself in the song yeah I guess we gotta go. Goodbye, Goodbye Andy. Andy, it's me. Haven't seen you in a while. I wish I'd talk to you more when you were alive. I thought you were self-assured. When you acted shy, hello, it's me I really miss you, I really miss your mind I haven't heard ideas like that for such a long, long time I love to watch you draw and watch you paint But when I saw you last, I turned away Billy name was sick and locked up in his room He asked me for some speed, I thought it was for you I'm sorry if I doubted your good heart 
Things always seem to end before they start. Hello, it's me. There was a great gallery show. Your cow wallpaper and your floating silver pillows. I wish I paid more attention when they laughed at you. Hello, it's me. Pop goes pop artist. The headline said, "Is shooting a put on? Is Warhol really dead? You get less time for stealing a car." I remember thinking as I heard my own record in a bar. They really hated you. Now all that's changed. But I have some resentments that can never be unmade. You hit me where it hurt. I didn't laugh. Your diaries are not a worthy epitaph. Well now, Andy, I guess we've gotta go. I wish some way, somehow, you liked this little show. I know this is late in coming. But it's the only way I know. Hello, it's me. Good night, Andy. Be your mirror, a song about that whole business of, of, of warholism, if you like, of reflecting back to people what they want to see. It's well, it's about reflecting back more than just what they want to see. It's sometimes reflecting back to them what they should see and don't know. It takes a certain kind of arrogance to say that. <laughs>